welcome to the AOL podcast. Let's dive right into this week's message. We'll get started. I'm excited to be back uh, again on Wednesday night for the for the Bible school, and I think y'all are going to enjoy tonight. And the rest of the, you know, Revelation is just one of those you can't help but be blessed because the Bible guarantees it. He said everyone that reads it will be blessed. So you can't be nothing else but blessed when you come to this place on Wednesday night for Bible school and the other Wednesday nights when we do first Wednesday, right? All right, let's uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Well, Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, Father, we just come before you. We thank you. We thank you so much for uh, what you've done for us through the cross, through Jesus. Jesus, we lift you up and we praise you. You are good. You are the Lamb of God, the, the uh, 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 seed of David. You're the one that, that, that was slain before the foundation of the earth for us, and you took away our sins. And so we thank you for that salvation. We thank you for everything that was done for us on the cross. And we thank you now that we can study the, the revelation of Jesus Christ in this place so that we can see the glory, the true glory and majesty that you are right now. And so we worship you. You are worthy of praise. You are the only one worthy of praise. We, we saw that in our last, last lesson. You were worthy. You were the only one worthy to open the seven seal scroll. And so, Father, as, as in Jesus, as we pray tonight, Father, we lift up the word to you. We ask your uh, presence here tonight to bless this time together, to bless each person here today, bless their ears, that their ears might be opened, our eyes of understanding might be opened, and that we will receive everything that the Spirit of God has for us tonight as we study your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We always like to do our declaration. So if you have your Bible, would you, would you lift it up and... Declare this with me. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what I said what it says I can do. And I can have what it says I can have. I am about to study from the incorruptible. In, in, incorruptible. It's been so long since I said the incorruptible everlasting word, seed of the word of God. Right? All right, okay. And I will never be the same again. I'll get back and practice again. Amen? It's been a while since I got to say that. I should have had my cheat sheet out, so I didn't say that. Okay. So right now, tonight, we're in, uh, you know, it's been since the uh, uh, 15th of November since we uh, studied in Revelation, so with, with the, with the uh, holiday break, the Christmas break, Thanksgiving break, and everything like that, we, we've, uh, we've gone a while for that, and so uh, we're back in, the, back in the swing of things for Bible school, and we'll, we'll be hitting it hard from now until we get finished, and I hope we can get finished by summertime because there's a lot to cover. But we'll, uh, and of course, we always have our first Wednesdays on the, on the first Wednesday of the month, and we, we sure don't want to skip those. But uh, anyway, we're back into uh, lesson number eight tonight. title of the lesson is When the Seals, Seven Seals, Open. Always remember, <clears throat> the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. And Jesus is the main thing. You know, when, when, we, um, when we think about Jesus in the, in the New Testament and we think that the, the other places that we've seen Jesus in there, we think about him as a suffering servant. He's, uh, you know, he was, at the, I wrote some scripture down just to, to um, you know, uh, highlight that because I want to highlight why we say the main thing is that the main thing is, 
is Jesus. But in Isaiah 53, 3, and, and a lot of you have this memorized by heart, but, or at least starting in verse 4, but Isaiah 53, 3 says, uh, when Isaiah's uh, prophesying about Jesus and his time on the earth, and when he comes on the earth, he says he is, he's, he's, he's speaking about Jesus in the future, and he says he is despised and rejected by man. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But now that Jesus has gone through all the things that he's gone through that for us through the cross, uh, now he is. we can see him as this book. That's why this book is so important, this book of Revelation, is because it's a revelation. It's the revealing of uh, Jesus Christ, Jesus, and like I said in the prayer, all his glory and all his majesty, and that's what we're seeing. And keep that in mind. That's what we're seeing now. No longer is he suffering on the cross. That's been taken care of. He's, re he's r rose again. He's, he's at the right hand of the throne of God, and he lives forever in our hearts. So praise God for that. Jesus in all his glory and majesty, that's where we're at tonight. So let's go. Let's do a quick recap from the previous lesson. So thus far in our study of Revelation of Jesus Christ, we have covered the first five, five chapters of the book. We believe the book is written by the Apostle John, the beloved apostle, from the vision given to him while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. In, the, in this study, we're using the instructions given to John by the Lord in verse 19 of chapter 1, where he said, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this, as the timeline to help interpret the sequence of events, the characters, and the visual portrayals, and what they may represent. So in chapter 5, we continued in the things that will take place after this. In other words, we're in the third division uh, of those things. We've seen the things which that the, the things which you have seen. Uh, we've seen the things which are, which was the churches that we studied in in chapters two and three, and then in four we started to see the things in the things that will take place after this. With the scene in heaven, that's where John was raptured in, or we say he was raptured into into the presence of God, and that represents the church. And the focus is on the very two important pieces of information during that uh, chapter, in chapter 5, which was the scroll in the right hand of God and then the one, the only one, who was worthy to receive it and open it and be worshipped by all, the, all in the earth and in the heavenly realms. He is the lamb as if it were slain and the lion of the tribe of Judah. His name is Jesus. I praise the name of Jesus, right? So preview for this study, just another quick cap, uh, recap. Um, the saints have been raptured, as we said, and, in, in, uh, you know, if you look at what happened when we see that as represented by John being caught up to heaven through the door, uh, the dis dispensation of grace is coming to a close. Uh, the church age is over. And what we mean by the dispensation of grace is coming to a close because when the church is gone and, and the Spirit of God is removed, not to say that there's, grace will not end until the end of the seven-year uh, tribulation time frame because then there will be you know at that point that was will happen when the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment takes place so grace is taking place the only part about it is uh, everyone needs to keep in mind to keep in, uh, keep that in in the forefront of your your hearts especially when you're thinking about your loved ones is grace is a, is a limited time frame and uh, get it before you die because grace is not available to you after you die that's when judgment uh, you know all are appointed to death and then the judgment. So that's why we say the, the grace is, is there. Take, take advantage of it now or make sure your, your loved ones, your family members, your, the people that you know you want to be in heaven with, uh, that's, that's what you need to uh, talk them into. And, the, of course, the church age will be over um, 
because of the rapture of the church. There will no longer be a, a, a church on the earth because it will be in, in uh, heaven uh, with Jesus during the seven years. We, we explained that on one of the lessons where we will, not, uh, we will not suffer the wrath of God during this period of time called the, the tribulation. So that will ha- what will happen to the earth or the world when the rapture occurs? The restrainer will have been removed. In other words, the spirit-filled church. We are the restrainer. The spirit-filled church is the restrainer. The Apostle Paul gives us a pretty clear picture of this in Second Thessalonians in, in chapter 2, uh, verse 1 through 12. It's a long passage, but it's well worth the read because there's so many things in there for you to see. And he says uh, to the church in Thessalonica, he said, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as as if from us, as through as though the day of Christ had come. See, and the and they had heard people say, "Well, you know, Jesus is already coming, so everybody's gone left." You know, and so they were troubled about that. They were hearing these things. Paul was trying to uh, straighten it up and and give them uh, comfort them through this. He says, as though the day of Christ had come, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. And when we're talking about that day, that's the day of Jesus. That's the day of the Lord that we see referenced in so many places. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first. In other words, that's the great apostasy, which has not happened yet, but it will. And the man of sin is revealed. The man of sin, meaning the Antichrist, and we'll talk about that in pretty good detail later in this lesson. The man of sin is revealed. He is called the son of perdition or destruction. Perdition means destruction. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you, do you not remember that when I was still in, with you, I told you, these, I, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining. It's the Holy Spirit-filled church. That he may restrain, be re, that he may be may be revealed in his own time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only he who now now restrains will do so until he is out taken out of the way so when what that means when he's underlined that because he he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way when the holy spirit every person that's a born again believer you know this but just to reiterate that fact every person carries the spirit bears the spirit of God within the, your Holy Spirit field, and those—that's the people that will be raptured out of the uh, out of the earth into the air. And uh, so, when that happens, then uh, you know, just think about it uh, in this regard. You know, how many people will be? I mean, what will conditions be when Christians are not around? When when uh, true uh, uh, spirit-filled Christians, people that serve the Lord, when they're no longer around. Uh, it's going to be a time of uh, chaos and mayhem. You can believe that. So he said that he, he who now restrains will go uh, so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, another name for the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord, Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure 
in unrighteousness. Keep that in mind, folks. We need to remember that in the end times when, when this does happen, uh, there will be a strong delusion. People will believe a lot of things. And you people ask, well, how in the world are people going to follow after somebody like the Antichrist? Well, it's because there's a strong delusion. And as we study the Antichrist and the and the character, his character and the things that he does, we'll see how, uh, how uh, powerful he's going to be and how persuasive he's going to be and uh, the things that he'll do to cause people. But, you know, even it doesn't take much to be, get people to believe a lie now, does it? I mean, how many? Uh, you, you just look around. It's you. You can put out just about anything. You know, if it's on Facebook, it's the truth, right? Or, or Instagram, or whatever. You know, it doesn't take much. Once you get a few clicks and people start acknowledging it, and everything, all of a sudden, uh, the the uh, uh, the lie becomes truth if it's repeated over and over again. So now, as we continue with chapter six, we will start to see the fulfillment of these things that Paul uh, prophesied in this passage to the uh, church at Thessalonica. So let's read. Uh, the first verse, verses, first eight verses of Revelation 6, and that's about as far as we're going to get tonight because there's quite a bit to cover. But it's some very interesting stuff. Now, now, starting in verse 1, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer and when he opened the second seal, this is Jesus. He's the one opening the seals. I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to make peace, to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked. And behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of uh, the four living creatures uh, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley uh, for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And then verse number seven, Then he, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So when the seven seals are open, like I said, we're only going to be able to get four of them tonight, but we'll, we'll cover quite a bit. In Revelation 4, 5, 4 through 5, the ver chapters 4 through 5, we were in heaven with John. We explained that a little earlier today. The first thing we saw was a throne and the Lord Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, sitting at God's right hand. He is also the Lamb, the Redeemer, and the one who is able to open the seven-sealed scroll, which is the title deed of this earth. The Lord Jesus is the only one who is able to judge this earth. Who he is and what he do, he's done makes him able to judge. He is God in the flesh, the creator and the redeemer of the universe. The Lord Jesus Christ alone is worthy to sit in judgment. Now, as we dive into Revelation 6, the judgment will begin and this basically, this is where we start with the, what we call the tribulation period. As we study this, we must keep in mind that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation, as uh, Peter said in Second uh, Peter one twenty. That is, you don't interpret any prophecy by itself. Each prophecy must be looked at as a part of a system and a program, and it must fit in with the others. In other words, prophecy is going to fulfill. I mean, prophecy is going to interpret itself. If you go back and forth through there and read. 
uh, the things that are spoken about that. And, and, and you need the whole Bible in order to interpret. You need the whole entire Bible in order to understand and interpret the book, book of Revelation. That's why we need to read Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, among many others. Without the puzzle pieces provided in these books, you can't get a clear and full picture of what is going on. From the beginning of Revelation, John gave us an orderly division of the book. Beginning with chapter 4, we study things to come. Now, if it is future and if we today are in the time of the things which are, like we said we are, we're in the, things, the, the, the church age, the period of the church, we cannot drag any of the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, or the persons that will, will be identified into our own day. In other words, those things and those, those parts of Scripture will be fitting into that in the future. The stage is being set, but none of these things are taking place today. Be careful not to get sucked into the sensationalism Bible study. It's not the way John put it down. In other words, there's people out there saying that we're living, we're living in the tribulation right now. No, we're not. Uh, not even close. Um, so uh, that's what we say. A lot of people like to sensationalize it and say, well, yeah, we're, we're, these things are being fulfilled right before our eyes. There are a lot of things being fulfilled. But I think a lot of these things are types and shadows of what's actually going to be fulfilled and what we're going to see in the, in, or what not we, not as believers, but people that are not believers will see during that period of time called the Great Tribulation or the Tribulation. The scene shifts from heaven to earth in Revelation 6 through chapter 18, and the Great Tribulation takes place. That's those from 6 to 18 will be, this will be the, the basically the time period where, the, where we see the things of the Great Tribulation. So what is happening on earth after the church leaves? The Great Tribulation takes place. The, subjects of the subject of chapter 6 through 18, the seven-sealed book is open. We'll see that in chapter 6. We'll cover part of it tonight all the way through chapter 8. Remember, Jesus was entrusted with it, uh, with it when we've seen that in chapter 5 and found to be the only one worthy, the only one with the authority open. He, he uh, breaks the seals and the four horses right out. So that's a symbolic rendering, but that's what it means. The four horses right out when, as he breaks the seals. We'll get into that specifically very quickly. Here's a visual aid to give an idea held by many Bible scholars as to how the seven-year tribulation period will develop in, uh, in relation to the judgments that come from the seven-sealed scroll. So basically what you see here is a, a diagram of the, of the tribulation period. So you can say starting from one side, you have chapter 6 all the way to the far side, to the right side would be chapter 18, and that the rest of it will uh, is all inclusive. So the first half of the of the tribulation period, we see six seals open, and the seventh is uh, we'll we'll understand that better as we get to it. But then what that what that what that happens is then we'll see the the trumpets and the bowls in the last half, and, and understand um, there's there's a lot of different interpretations and and uh, the beliefs on how far into the revelation does the seals go and this, that, and the other. But I think this one holds pretty close to what most um, scholars have uh, come up with. There are some that says, you know, the, the seals end in the first 21 months. And I'm not going to get into that so much because I, I think right now we can see where this will kind of help us follow how these things come out. In there, and there may be some things that I say later that might contradict some of this. Here, we'll try to uh, not that it's contradictory, but it may shed a different light on it as we go through here. But I believe this will this will stay pretty true to this this diagram and this um, chart right here. So we need to get a big big picture of the entire tribulation before we dive into the details. Revelation six 
through chapter 18 describe the great tribulation is divided into is dividing but divided into four series. Each of these series describes seven pieces. The seven seals in the book are like an umbrella over the entire period. The first six seals would be opened in turn and judgments will come out. Uh, between the sixth and seventh seal and also between the sixth and seventh trumpets and bowls, there's a pause and John either explains something or answers specific questions. Uh, more on this in the next lesson. That's, that's a subject that has to be kind of understood because sometimes it gets a little confusing. You think everything, well, we're having a flashback or in and out or whatever like that, but uh, it's either called a, a pause or an interlude or as Dake does in his study Bible, he calls it a parenthetical. And we'll, we'll understand that as we go. It'll be a little easier. Uh, and that'll start, I think, with uh, uh, lesson number nine uh, when we get to, to the, uh, when we finish the seals and get into the other um, uh, chapter. Then within the seventh seal, a judgment is announced with seven trumpets. The same pattern follows. Six trumpets are sounded, a pause. Then within the seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath are introduced. The entire process fits within the seals. In other words, there's seven seals. All of this process fits within those seven seals. The seventh thing he describes always opens the door to the next series, which includes seven things. This connects each of the series. You see the pattern. You always through there. You know, seven is the is the is the number of completion. So you have seven, then you have seven again, then you have another seven, and it, that's you know it's just a pattern that helps us better understand and see the complete the completeness of the of the book of Revelation. Uh, this connects each of the series: the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven personalities. We'll see this in chapters twelve through thirteen, and the the seven bowls of wrath are all about the same period but from a little different angle. Sometimes we'll see the scene from heaven, but most of this happens on earth. In a very orderly way, it unfolds like this. The six, the six seals all open and reveal themselves through that uh, Revelation 6, 1 through 8, 1. And then the seventh seal introduces the blowing of the seven trumpets, which will happen from Revelation 8, 2 through uh, Revelation eleven nineteen. And then the blowing of the seventh trumpet introduces seven surprising people. Uh, we, like I said, we'll cover that in chapters 12 and 13. And the beast out of the sea introduces the seven bowls of wrath, uh, we'll, which we'll see in uh, Revelation 15 through 16. And the last bowl of wrath brings, us, brings to us the judgment of Babylon, and that brings to an end the great tribulation period, uh, Revelation 17 through 18. And then Christ returns to earth to set up his kingdom. An interesting note, remember the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis 11? You all, all remember? Matter of fact, if you're reading through the Bible, you probably already covered that, so you remember this. Keep that in mind because we've got a great deal to cover about that here in just a little bit about uh, Genesis 11, but you probably already covered that in there. The, this, this first organized rebellion against God happened in Babylon. Babel and Babylon, same thing. And they were judged by it. Babylon also represents the last rebellion against God, both religiously in chapter 17 and politically in chapter 18. Babylon receives the first and the last judgments. This brings to an end man's day on this earth. <clears throat> in this whole overarching account, it's important to remember that Jesus is directing everything now. He's the only one worthy to open this scroll. This is the revelation, the unveiling of him. Like I said earlier, this is what we see now. Jesus in all his glory and all his majesty, and he is in control. He is no longer the teacher walking the shores of Galilee 
or the inspector walking among the lampstands. Neither is he the high priest standing as intercessor. Now he is the executor. And we're talking about this is future events. You know, these things are, you know, when we say he's no longer the intercessor, I'm talking about that office for him has closed out when the, when the great tribulation um, uh, starts. So right now he's still the inspector walking among the lampstands. He's still our high priest right now during this time. But we're talking about a, a prophetic time in the future when we say that he's no longer, uh, the, these offices no longer the teacher walking the shores. He's always be our teacher until the time comes when we are in his presence. So I just want to make sure you see this. This is all prophetic. All the judgments of the great tribulation, uh, let's see, now he is the executor of God's will on the earth as he opens the seals of the scroll. Uh, I see everything changes because this is the revealing of what his, this is the revealing of really the true glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. All the judgments of the great tribulation flow from out of the seals. Out of the seals comes the trumpets. Out of the trumpets comes the cast of characters. And out of the cast comes the bowls of wrath. Christ directs the entire operation from heaven. This judgment on earth will take place at the Lord's command. The church will be delivered from this period of judgment. Why? They are sinners, but they are saved by the grace of God. By those who reject the grace, only those who reject the grace of God go into the great tribulation period. When they make, there, there will be no Christian that will miss the rapture if they're truly a Christian and they have the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling in them. They will not miss the rapture. So if you miss the rapture, then obviously you're not a true Christian. That's what basically what it says. So when they make the decision to refuse God's grace offered to them in Jesus Christ, they choose to be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ himself instead. What we experience in chapters 4 and 5 prepares us for what follows the judgment of the earth. In chapter 4, we saw the thrones and the triune God. In chapter 5, we saw the scroll and the Lord Jesus Christ. Certain factors increase the intensity and ferocity of the great tribulation. As we saw in the passage from 2 Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians earlier, the Holy Spirit will restrain evil no longer. He will, be, he will still be in the world. He doesn't leave. He is omnipresent. Remember, that's one of, his, one of the characters or one of the, the things of God. He is omnipresent, omnipo, omni, uh, 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 you know, omnipotent, and omniscient. He knows all things. He's all-powerful, and he's everywhere at all times. He is omnipresent, the Holy Spirit. Even before the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was active. When the church was born in Acts 2, the Spirit began a new ministry of baptizing believers into the body of Christ, a ministry of indwelling them, uh, of filling them, and of leading and guiding them in this world. When Jesus Christ takes the church out of the world, that does not mean the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit will leave. He, is, he will still be there, but we, He will not restrain evil any longer. In other words, uh, mankind, or should we say the worst of mankind, will have its day during that period along with Satan. You definitely don't want to be here, and you don't want your loved ones here either. That ought to be enough incentive right there to tell everybody about it. You know, the thing about it is every generation from the time of, uh, of Jesus has, has uh, that's why the, the church in Thessalonica was asking those questions. Everyone thought that uh, the, the time was close, and we should be doing that. You know, as a believer, we should be looking for the coming of our Lord Jesus. We should be anticipating that with bated breath, if you want to say. We should be saying, come, Lord Jesus. That should be our call. That's what Maranatha stands for, come, Lord Jesus. And we should be acting like that. So every generation probably after that has always said, well, this is the generation the Lord's coming. You know, it's, it's, uh, we see all these things happening. So, but I, I believe what we see now, we're in the, uh, we're in the accelerated 
uh, time frame of, of the things that we see it there. But I'm just saying it's not unique to just this generation. All of them, even even during when Hitler was around, they, they thought, well, he's the Antichrist, you know, and he's surely the Lord's coming soon. And well, it didn't happen, and that was uh, that was 60, 70 years ago. So um, anyway, just to give you some perspective on that, the true the true church, as light and salt, we be, will be gone from the earth through the rapture. Although the church has very little influence in the world today, it still has some. But when we leave the earth, that influence leaves with us, and there will be none left. Satan, no. Can you imagine an airplane flown by a Christian pilot? Airplanes, by you know, or or trains, or cars, or whatever like that. What's going to happen when that rapture occurs? And it's going to it's going to be it's going to create in uh, uh, hell on earth or chaos like no one's ever ever seen. But you know, we want to be a part of that, right? We want to be a part of that of uh, the uh, the rapture. Satan knows he has but a short time. He will take advantage of it during this period, and God will give him free reign. Evil men will be free to carry out their evil plans. And for a short time, the Antichrist will be able to take over this earth. You know, we think we're living in times when we see evil at some of the highest levels we've ever seen, and we do. But I can't imagine what the evil is going to be after the rapture when everybody, when the Christians and when the, when the restrainer is gone. I just can't imagine how evil people will be. It's crazy. On this scene, uh, God will execute direct judgment. His day of wrath has come. Who is able to face God and stand before the wrath of the Lamb? The great tribulation will not break suddenly like a great tornado, but the opening of the seven seals is gradual, one at a time, in a logical and chronological order, giving an overall picture of that seven-year period. The Lord Jesus Christ is in full charge, and every creature in heaven is moving at his command. He takes the seven-sealed book or scroll and breaks the first seal right and in order, and the four horsemen ride out, introducing the great tribulation. The first six seals describe the events of the first three and a half years, and the last seal, the seventh, details the second half. Beginning with the riding of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, these are, are terrible, terrific judgments on the earth. They are so tremendous, they boggle the mind just to read about them. So let's start with opening the first seal, the rider on a white horse. Verses 1 and 2 of that uh, chapter 6. John tells us what he saw and heard. He said, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, Come and see. And I, will look, I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. I hope you brought your Bibles where you can underline and make notes and things like that because some of these things you need to underline. Some of these things like white horse you need to underline, like bow you need to underline, like crown you need to underline conquering and to conquer to under, underline because I say these things because there's more detail there than what we see. You read those things and you read quite quickly across those and you don't understand exactly what's going on. So, what, huh? Are they on theirs? Yeah. Good. Yeah, these are the ones that probably should. But I'm even in your Bible when some things you need to, to, to do that. I didn't realize that those were on there like that, but that's good. I, I underlined them for you, so I did good. <laughs> okay. All right, we're talking about the white horse. This is the Antichrist, an imitation of Christ, one who pretends to be Christ. He doesn't appear as a villain. After all, Satan's angels are angels or light or of light. They can they can uh, portray themselves as angels of light. He won't look dark and foreboding or have hidden clo hidden uh, horns or cloven feet. In fact, he'll be the most attractive man the world has ever seen, and he'll promise world unity and peace. This guy 
will be so charismatic, so good looking, so whatever it is. He'll have it's, it'll just be one of those kind of guys that's like a magnet. He's going to draw people uh, to him, and he will be a great man. And that's that's part of the, the the deception right there that you have to be aware of. In fact, so the world won't care if he comes from heaven or hell. They will want a peace at any price. And see, he's not. He's see what we're saying here. We've had the rapture, so the antichrist is not going to be revealed while Christians are on earth. The antichrist is going to be revealed or opened up in this white horse after the rapture. When these are people that are not believers, they'll elect him with cheers and will think the world is entering the millennium. Uh, this is deception. When it uh, actually, when it's actually entering the great tribulation, the great tribulation comes in like a lamb, but it goes out like a lion. A promise of peace is the big lie. That's where we get this strong delusion. You know, he's going to. There's going to be a strong delusion on people. Uh, the world will swallow whole this whole thing, just like we talked about in Second uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter two, verse nine and eleven. Even today, the world is moving in the direction of a world uh, dictator, a new world order. Uh, we we see that all over the place. All the nations of the world are disturbed, lawlessness abounds, and governments are not able to control as they should. This is all preparing the way for the coming of the Antichrist. See, we see those we see that type and shadow going on right now of what's happening. Uh, these are things that will be fulfilled. Now there are there are some arguments, and we'll talk about that a little bit uh, later. But there are some arguments that uh, that his this Antichrist is not going to be. Uh, there are some. Bible scholars, very highly respected Bible scholars, that say the Antichrist will not be a, uh, he, he will not be the ruler of the world. Now, he's going to seek to be the ruler of the world, but he may not get to that point, as we'll see in one of these scriptures here later about uh, what it says and how it kind of defines his territory of operation. And uh, there are some Bible scholars that stick pretty close to that. But anyway, let's spend a little extra time in this revealing of the Antichrist. We've got a lot to cover on that. Antichrist, anyone against Christ is Antichrist. Anything against Christ is Antichrist. But Strong's Concordance gives a little clarity to the actual meaning of the word. Antichrist is the Greek word, uh, antichristos, uh, two words combined there to say opposite to or in place of, and then Christos, which is Christ. That means, in other words, meaning properly, opposite to Christ, someone acting in place of, against Christ, Antichrist. In other words, in place of could also mean a false Christ or a fake Christ or in what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 5 and Luke 21, 8. He says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. We have that. We've had people all through the ages for the last 2,000 years come and say they were the Christ and they've led people into, into, um, into death cults and things like that. Uh, Luke 21, 8 says, and he said, I'll, he said, this is Jesus speaking. He said, "Take heed that you be not be, you do not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am He, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them.' So we we have that deception going on. So anyone that portrays himself as a, a you know a false Christ, and as a matter of fact, I even read an article the other day. I, I think it was uh, on uh, Instagram where this where there's a there's a dude in in um, Africa that he's calling himself Jesus Christ, and he's got a high following of, you know, thousands of people down there, but he says he's Jesus Christ. And, you know, of course, the proof is in the pudding. Uh, you know, can you walk on water? Can you do these or whatever? But, you know, there's going to be many people out there that say they are Christ, and I suppose, and we'll see this when we get to uh, that point in the Antichrist, that that's, that's going to be one of the things. He's going to set himself as up as God, as Christ, and uh, we'll see that. But the reason I... 
underline some of those things before we see the white horse. Uh, that's very important. It's symbolic of a great leader in battle. Uh, could also symbolize victory. In the days of the Roman Empire, the victorious uh, generals or leaders triumphantly entered the conquered city of, or kingdom riding a white horse or in a chariot pulled by white horses. Some clarification. Some believe the rider on the white horse is Jesus. Well, Jesus can't be the rider on the white horse and the one open the scroll at the same time, right? So, I mean, we already know that. I think most people that would believe that or, or see that uh, knows that. Jesus is already, um, he's, he's, the one, he's the one that's not on there. So people that interpret that as him riding the white horse, they have, a, they have not read the rest of the book. Jesus does return on a white horse in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. But this, is, but this here is a satanic, satanic dictator who imitates Christ, the one we're talking about here, the Antichrist. So, so the next symbol or, or thing I wanted you to understand, you, you understand white horse means the, the Antichrist. So it's not, we're not talking about Jesus for sure. So we're talking about these are judgments on the earth now. And so the white horse is, is the, um, so that's why it's a, the white horse and all the rest of the explanation you can read. And then he carries a bow, uh, aggressive warfare, but no arrows. So he will conquer by diplomacy. And that will include a lot of deception that goes into that. Also, the bow symbolizes evil. So you can see Genesis 10.8. You can see Genesis 21.16 or 27.3 or Ephesians 6.16. Read those on your own. But the point I want to get across on there, the bow also symbolizes evil. You remember, I believe in, um, in um, well, when, when the flood happened, that was in uh, chapter 9 and 10 of Genesis. What was the covenant sign that God gave uh, to his people that there would never be another flood on the earth. A bow, right? An ark in the sky or the rainbow, right? So when we see one of the things, and, and, and some scholars believe that this is pointing to that, that he has a bow without arrows. Of course, a bow is a weapon, and we'll get more into that too because we'll see the notes on Nimrod below. I want you to see that because it's very interesting about Nimrod. You all have heard about Nimrod, but I'm probably going to show you more stuff about Nimrod that you've ever seen before. But anyway, that's, look at those things right there. One of the passages in Genesis 21:16 is also showing where uh, I believe that's the part where uh, Ishmael was a, a great hunter. And, and then uh, you just have to read those things. But when you read those things in the context of thinking about uh, the bow symbolizes evil, you'll see that uh, actually when, what this bow is, when, when he says a bow, which is not, I'm, I'm, most people look at that as a bow, a bow and with arrows, but a bow was also the the uh, was a, a token of the covenant that God had placed uh, for His people on the earth that I will never destroy the earth again. All people on the earth with a bow. So, as a far as a, a symbolizing of evil, evil, anybody that holds up a bow, and we'll see more about that later, about in, in Nimrod, is is uh, is symbolizing a breaking of the covenant, um, a breaking of this covenant, a a, a, a um, an aggressive attack on the covenant of God, and we'll see why here in just a little bit. So we see, so we also see on here where this this rider on the white horse receives a crown, which is the Greek word Stephanos. We've talked about this before. It's a crown given for victory, but not a crown of ruling authority, as it, as in diadem. In other words, that's another way you separate the two. Uh, the the white horse rider in in uh, chapter six 
receives a, a crown given for victory, but not a crown of ruling authority or, or a diadem. It's a Stephanos crown, but the one in uh, 1911, the crown that Jesus receives, it will be a diadem crown. That's the one that has all the authority and all kingship over everything. So, so sometimes uh, when we see the word Stephanos as addressed here, and I'm pretty sure this applies to uh, the, the man himself, the Antichrist, it can be seen as a self-awarded crown. In other words, he crowns himself as the king of the world or the king of his area uh, that he's out to uh, dominate. Uh, so that's what the conquering and to conquer is out to dominate the world. Here's one who's been on bent on conquering by whatever means are necessary, economic instability, government control, subversion and deception, etc. Taking this to be the final satanic dictator over men, we see that it will be, he will be more terrible than all previous dic dictators were. He will rule over men as a false messiah, there it is again, the false Christ, uh, and lead mankind in organized rebellion against God in the pattern of Nimrod, his first predecessor. Additional notes of interest for consideration uh, concerning Antichrist and the Nimrod connection. This is what I want you to see. The passage, Genesis 10, 8 through 12. Uh, Y'all remember the story when uh, after the flood, uh, Noah, Noah got drunk, had three sons, Cush. No, he had three sons. He had Ham, Seth, and uh, who was the other one? Yeah, Japheth. So anyway, uh, Noah passed out in his tent or whatever as he was uncovered. The, they, uh, Ham come back and said he seen his father, and they anyway they backed up and put covered him on there, but uh, but uh, Ham did not. He looked upon his dad in his state of uncovering, and so uh, so at that point, Ham was cursed, and that uh, you have to go back and read that. So Cush is the son of Ham. So Cush, we're going to start in verse eight through twelve. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty man, on, uh, mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From the land he went to Assyria. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Er, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. So you know you sound, you read that and it doesn't sound too bad. You know he's a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and so. But let's let's read on and, and discover a few other things. Nimrod. Uh, so here's a a, a a section out of uh, Dake's annotated Bible that he put about Nimrod. It, uh, the the name Nimrod comes from the Hebrew Marad, which means to rebel or we will rebel. It points to some violent and open rebellion against God. Nimrod began to be a mighty one upon the earth by bold and daring deeds. His rebellion is associated with the beginning of his kingdom and suggests that his hunting and mighty deeds were related primarily to hunting men by tyranny and force. He lorded it over others, hunting and destroying all who opposed him in his despotic rule over men. This is the meaning and understand and meaning understood by Josephus and other writers of the Targums. The Targums are commentaries on the on the scriptures uh, written before uh, written about uh, the things that the other books. In other words, it's like a commentary you read about, the commentaries we read about the Bible, well, these targums are basically the same. They give a little bit more detail from the study and things like that. Josephus says that Nimrod persuaded men not to ascribe their happiness to God, but to him as the cause of it. 
He became a great leader, taught men to centralize. Remember the Tower of Babel. Taught men to centralize and defied, it, defied, uh, defied God to send another flood. It is said that Nimrod hunted down wild beasts also, which were killing many people, and taught men to build walls around cities for protection against them. You can see how he was, he was when he was doing this, he was, he was uh, hunting wild animals and he was setting himself up as a mighty hunter, but it also was drawing people to him, uh, saying, this man is protecting us. And so, you know, he's, it, it's a, there's a level of deception right there. The term mighty hunter in Hebrew could refer to a, to a hunter or of animals or of men to enslave them. Nimrod was a hunter of uh, both men and animals. The Hebrew word gibor, translated mighty here, means a powerful warrior, tyrant, uh, champion, giant, or strong one. It is used of giants who were renowned for wickedness. And you see that right before the flood in Genesis 6, uh, chapter four, uh, verse 4. And of other wicked men. There's other scriptures you can read to see those things. So could logically refer to Nimrod as a t- uh, tyrant and despot. Uh, oppressing others in the earth. He established the first kingdom and the first universal religion opposing God. He was the first, this was the great first great apostasy when he opposed God by setting up that first universal religion uh, since the flood of Noah. This was done before the Lord. That is, you know, sounding before the Lord means he was doing it and, and the Lord was acknowledging it, but what it actually says is that is openly in the presence of God with all defiance. That is why God when he came down to see Babel, took action to counteract the rebellion of Nimrod. And you read that in, in uh, uh, Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now, here's another article I found. This was by Chuck Missler uh, in an article that he wrote called, called Cosmic Deception. But this is a part about Nimrod. He said, throughout the Bible, we see that the Holy Spirit uses dramatic stories that scholars call types or models. You know, we've seen that before. We say a lot of things. People in the Bible are types or shadows of Jesus Christ. So as, as a way of revealing the nature, mission, or destiny of Jesus Christ, God even declares this through the prophet Hosea. He said, I've also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes, which means models or types, by the ministry of the prophets. The lives of Moses, Joseph, and the, and the, and the uh, sacrifice of Isaiah in Genesis 22 are but a few examples. However, in the book of Genesis, we have the story of Nimrod, who, according to many scholars, is a typological model of the Antichrist. Nimrod, whose name means the rebel, was the son of Cush and lived after the flood. Nimrod's rebellion, which was an open revolt against God, was exemplified by his leadership of a great confederacy of people. This confederacy consisted of a unified one-world government with a common language. He was a founder of an ungodly, idolatrous, pagan religious system from which most of the subsequent pagan religions emerged. I would say all of them emerged from somewhere from this from this religious system here, and we'll cover that a little bit more. But extra-biblical records indicate that he set himself up as God and has, was even worshipped by the ungodly nations as the God of gods. Sound familiar for the Antichrist? Nimrod, the king of, and we'll see that in, in chapter, um, I think, 12 or 13, when he starts to reveal himself or, or when he sets himself up as God. Nimrod, the king of Babylon, had his headquarters in Babylon, it is interesting to note that the coming world leader is called the King of Babylon, uh, and, and in the book of Revelation, he is connected with Mystery Babylon. Uh, so we'll uh, define that in a little bit more detail here in a minute. Nimrod's supreme ambition was to make a name for himself. All of these characteristics parallel the, the, the uh, 
resume of the coming world leader who will exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing, excuse me, showing himself as he that he is God. There is an additional aspect of the story that we find very provocative. Nimrod is called a mighty one in the text of Genesis 10:8, and Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. This is provocative because the title mighty one is the same Hebrew word gibberim, uh, gibberim that is frequently used as a synonym for the Nephilim. Anybody know what the Nephilim are? Nephilim are the giants. That's the ones in chapter 6. While we do not know whether he was a Nephilim, it is interesting that in order to complete the typology of the Antichrist, the Holy Spirit inspired Moses, the author of Genesis, to use the very same synonym for the Nephilim. In other words, you know, you remember the story when the sons of God become came down to earth and mated with the, the sought out the daughters of man, and giants became as a result of that. There were giants in the earth. Well, that word nephilim is actually the the Hebrew word, or actually it's nephil, and nephilim means uh, plural, of course. But the, they were the giants of the earth. That's what that means. You can go back and uh, use, look in the interlinear and if you want to study that further. So here's another passage or another uh, article out of Dake's Revelation notes about concerning Nimrod. As according to Alexander Hislop's The Two Babylons, which is a uh, I'm going to have to get that book because it's got some interesting stuff in it. But anyway, which quotes 260 sources. In other words, he he went to 260 different sources and books to come up with this. The ancient Babylonian cult started by Nimrod and his queen Semiramis spread among all nations. The objects of worship were the Supreme Father, the incarnate female or Queen of Heaven, and her son. You'll get this here in a minute. Things will start clicking in your mind when you see all these things like that. The Queen of Heaven, the incarnate female. Okay? The cult claimed the highest wisdom and the most divine secrets. Besides confessions to priests, there were many mysterious rites. Or the, the cult claimed the highest, yeah, the highest division. So uh, many mysterious rites. Julius Caesar became head of the Roman branch of the Babylonian cult in 63 B.C. Other emperors held the office until 376 A.D. after Christ when the uh, emperor Gratian, for Christian reasons, Gratian was a Christian uh, or a professing Christian at that time, he refused it because he saw that Babylonianism, mystery Babylon, was idolatrous. Damasus, the bishop of the Christian church at Rome, was elected to the headship in 378 A.D. And from here on, Babylonianism and organized Christianity became one. The, remember when we talked about this in the, in, in the study of the seven churches that got letters? The church at uh, Pergamos uh, was representative of, the, of this church. Uh, I mean, this, this, uh, uh, the Roman church, I guess you could say now. Uh, the Roman Catholics, and uh, oh, anyway, let me continue, and then I'll explain a little bit more. The rites of the Babylon of Babylon were soon introduced into Christian into the Christian Church. Heathen temples were restored, beautiful, beautified, and their rituals encouraged. Worship and veneration of images, saints, relics, private confessions, penances, scourgings, pilgrimages, signs of the cross, Christmas, Lady Day. Easter, Lent, and other pagan rites and festivals, little by little, became part of Christian worship. Other scriptures that point to the Antichrist are attached at the end of this lesson. In other words, you can go back at the end of this lesson. There's a whole list of scriptures that you can go and look and read more about things, scriptures that are actually 
pointing to the Antichrist. What I wanted to say about this, and I don't want to stir up a whole lot, uh, but, you know, the important thing to remember about this is uh, uh, what this is talking about, and you can see it here, that where it says the, this ancient cult of Babylonianism, as it was called here, and the organized church, as it was back then, the organized church, which was the forebears of the Roman Catholic Church, joined forces, and from there, that's where they come up with a lot of these, and, and I'm, I'm not bashing the Catholic Roman Catholic Church. I believe there are Roman Catholics that are saved, but I believe that's our, I think we have to say it. Some things we have to say out loud. Some things we have to say whether we, uh, you know, it, it, it may offend some people when they say, well, I've got a great-grandma that was Catholic, and surely she's in I don't know. I can't, I'm not the judge. I'm just saying that uh, the Roman Catholic Church has direct ties to these pagan rituals and rites. And, you, and so I say this to say, you know, the Bible record here shows that uh, these things happened and throughout history, uh, the, the church, uh, the church that was, the organized church, has, uh, has been corrupted to the point where it's, uh, you know, we can't tell it when you look at all these things here that are uh, part of the, the pagan uh, rites and rituals. That's what we mean by mystery Babylon. In other words, everything. I want to say something else that's probably going to offend some people. But uh, I'm sorry. I just got to say it because it's just the way it is, you know, when some things. And it's not that I don't love Catholics or love other people that are in certain organizations. But, but uh, you know, our, the, the, these organizations that we have now, even like the Masonic, uh, uh, the, the Masons, the Masonic uh, rites and things that they go through, those are anti-Christ. Those are anti-biblical. You may have daddies or brothers or people. You may be a member yourself, but it's a cult, and it's, it's, it's anti-Christ. And people that are in that need to be delivered from that and need to be uh, pulled out of that uh, situation because that is the ancient cult of Babylonianism that started with Nimrod back through there, and you can count all that stuff. I can go on and on and on about those things. All I'm saying that for is because as we see these things and we see the, the things that are happening right here, you know, one of the things we need to do is look into it a little deeper and say, what can we do to, to rescue our, our friends and our family and our, our loved ones from these places where they might be part of that uh, false religion or that false, uh, the mystery Babylon? All, all things, I'm, talk, I'm talking, and it all boils down to basically Satanism when it comes right down to it. They're all going to end up, all of these religions end up worshiping and these cults and, and things like that, uh, these organizations that uh, restrict members. I mean, all you have to do, uh, and when I say that about the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Masons or, or the other organizations that are like that, uh, they have these secret rites and things like that where you have to be initiated into things like uh, they're into the, to become uh, one of theirs. You know, those, those things are not, you know, Christianity is transparent. It's, that's why he says profess before men, you know, to confess your faith before men. So there's nothing secret about Christianity. There's no secret rights. There's no hidden agenda. There's no thing like that. So any of those things that have a, have a hidden agenda or have a hidden right or ritual or things like that, then if they're part of that, then they need to be rescued from that. So I, I, I'm just saying don't take it in the wrong way or take it too far out of context. I apologize if I offended you, but then I don't either because I think the truth needs to be heard. Okay, so take it up with my pastor if you don't mind. <laughs>
<laughs> you know, if, or me, either one. I don't, you know, I'm, it's not that I don't care. It's just that I'm concerned that there's the truth sometimes. And nowadays, when we're living in the last days, I think the truth needs to be revealed as much as possible. And there's a lot of people I respect, a lot of people I love, a lot of people that have been in my life in the past that have been in these organizations. And, and uh, matter of fact, I was even invited to join a long time ago myself. And thank God uh, Jesus rescued me from that. But anyway, let's move on. Oh, let's go to the second seal, okay? Did you get anything out of that understanding about Nimrod and the and the and the mystery Babylon? And we'll see more of that as we go through there. We'll we'll touch base with uh, Antichrist many times between now and uh, chapter 19. So we'll have more information as we go. So that was the first seal. Opening the second seal is the rider on a red horse. John continues with what he saw and heard. He said, "When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature come, saying, "Come and see." Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. The Antichrist counterfeit peace is short-lived. Immediately after the white horse comes riding the, the red horse of the war on earth, Antichrist will be revealed as a phony. He won't bring peace because here goes the fiery horse, red horse of war, riding throughout the earth again. This will be a real-world war. Not all nations will give in to this his demands and conditions immediately or as quickly as he would like, and his deceptive peace will fall apart. Power struggles always result in bloody war. Matthew 24, uh, 6 through 7, Jesus said this in that passage of uh, Matthew 24. He says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Do we hear wars and rumors of wars today? See that you are not troubled, for these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Well, we'll see how that uh, pans out here. Opening the third, third seal, the rider on a black horse. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. See, famine always follows war. See, we're going to be in uh, you, you, it, it, World War One, World War Two. Go study the history. And during those times, there was there was famines and there were wars because the whole world gets out of kilter. Out, of, you know, the processes of farming and producing food and factories and things like that. Everything is shaken because of wars. But famine always follows wars. The color of the black horse indicates mourning and a worldwide famine on earth. Now some, like I say earlier, some will say it's not a worldwide famine. Some of them will say it's a localized famine, but we'll, we'll address that later. But anyway, I, you know, it's a famine, a great famine. Scales in the hand of the rider implies scarcity and rationing of food. In other words, it's not saying there's no food. It's just saying it's a scarcity of food and a rationing of food. A denarius was considered a day's wages back in those days, but it would still only be able to purchase a but it will only be able to purchase a quart, which was considered enough for one person, about 12 to 15 times higher than normal. In other words, with the normal day's wages, they could, they could purchase 12 to 15 times more than they what will be able to during this time. You talk about inflation now, think about how it's going to be 12 to 15 times higher than normal when this happens during the tribulation period. The common working man will not be able to support and feed his family, but the luxuries of the rich will still flow. 
Oil and wine, which are luxuries, will be available, but only the rich and elite will be able to afford them, and even at a high cost. So that's what that means about that. It'll still be there, but only the, the rich and, and elite will have the money enough to do it. It will not be uh, people on the lower level will just be barely getting by. Opening the fourth seal, the rider of a pale horse, on a pale horse. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death and Hades. Hell, in King James Version, followed with him. You know, pastor's always saying, I see death, and hell is following. You know, that that uh, that, uh, uh, that little quip from, uh, which one was it? Uh, pale, no, it wasn't Pale, well, it was Pale Rider, but also it was on... Uh, um, the one where they had the, the Kurt Russell played the wider tombstone, wasn't it? Yeah, tombstone, yeah. Anyway, that quote. I started to look that up to be more clear about that. But anyway, pastors brought that up two or three times. I see death and hell is followed. Anyway, followed. Well, that's, and the power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. That's one of the places right there where it says over a fourth of the earth where people come up with that. Uh, some scholars come up with that to say this is a limited destruction and a limited famine and a limited war because he's only because uh, this death in Hades has power was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. On this fourth horse, a greenish yellow pale horse, death comes riding in. Pale in, in Greek is chloros, meaning ashen, corpse-like, pale, or lacking color or usually it's a pale green. The sword, famine, pandemic, wild animals will decimate the earth's population by 25%. Now, see, that's where some people interpret that, meaning a fourth of the earth, meaning he will, you know, that's that, that death and hell will be um, a, 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 over a 25% of the earth's population at that time. This pale horse with Hades or hell following is the reaper of the results of the other three riders. In other words, we had the Antichrist who deceived and caused war. We have war that caused much death and, and uh, destruction. And then we have the, the famine and the scarcity. That, that this, is, this death, much death, uh, has, is the result, the grim reaper of the results of the other three riders. The fact that Hades follows the pale horse of death indicates that these are unsaved dead. A believer who receives Christ during the tribulation, there will be believers during the tribulation, uh, will not go to Hades, the place reserved for unbelievers as they await the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. I believe there's going to be other raptures occur uh, during the tribulation period where the saints will be raptured into heaven, uh, maybe at the time of their salvation or their, or their death, but there will be uh, believers uh, uh, that come to know Christ during the tribulation period, many. We'll see that later. Ezekiel 14, uh, 21 gives us kind of an Old Testament uh, 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 type, typological of that. It says, For thus says the Lord God, how much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beast and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. So our, you know, our, our Old Testament's always testifying to the things that are happening in the future. Nothing will be able to stop death, but death is more than physical. Sin and death entered the world at the same time. Death comes as a result of sin. Death hasn't has an all-inclusive threefold meaning. We think of death as referring only to the body as physical as a result of Adam's sin, but death is also spiritual when it separates our rebellious sin against God. See, that's where we're at when we're a non-believer 
that our, our spirit is dead to the Lord. And so when, when Jesus, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that's when the, the Spirit of God uh, rebirths our spirit and we become believers. And that's so we no longer ha- are separated from, by death uh, uh, from God because of our sin because it's already been taken care of by the blood of Jesus. But death is also spiritual when it separates our rebellious spirit against God. We have no capacity for God and no desire for Him at all. Finally, an eternal death separates us from God unless we are redeemed the kind that is coming in Revelation 2014. And that happens when the great white throne uh, judgment happens and, and uh, the lake of fire where everything is, is uh, all are put into the lake of fire. But we'll get to that. But God didn't create man to die. Death is a penalty because Adam disregarded God's commands. You remember the story. Uh, as the head of the human family, his, his disobedience is our disobedience. His death is our death. Now Jesus Christ is the head of our, our new creation. He alone can give life. He is totally responsible for the life and eternal bliss of those who or who of those who are his own. When it says when Adam says when it says up there about his his uh, death is our death, what well, we can say about Christ, his life is our life. That's what Jesus Christ did for us. During the great great tribulation death will ride unbridled. Jesus tells us that the days had to be shortened or else no one else or no one would have survived. We see that in Matthew 24, 22. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh should be saved, would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And finally, at the great white throne judgment, death will be destroyed. Revelation 20, 14. Then death and haze were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Revelation 21, 4 says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. Uh, for the former things have passed away. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 26, and the last, the last enemy shall be destroyed, that will be destroyed, is death. And that's where it's cast in, just like it says in 2014, cast into the lake of fire, death, and Hades, along with the Antichrist and the false prophet and Satan himself, will be cast into the lake of fire. These four horsemen riding across the earth is the fulfillment of what Jesus already told us in his sermon on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24, 5 through 8. John merely widens it out and gives us additional information. What he says is based on what the Lord Jesus said before he left the earth the first time. And read this. This is, this is how, it, how all these four horsemen fit into what Jesus is saying here. Read it. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. That's the white horse. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's the red horse. And see that you are not troubled, for these things, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines. That's the black horse. Pestilences, uh, that's the pale horse. And earthquakes in various places. All these things, all these are the beginning of sorrows. So this is the opening of the great tribulation with these four uh, first seals being opened with the four horsemen as we see here. And we can see that these judgments show the wrath of men against men. In other words, this is men killing men right now. But going forward with the rest of the seal judgments, as we'll see in the next lesson, the trumpets and the bowls, we'll see the wrath of God beginning to be poured out upon men in the future perspective. I just put this picture, and this is probably going to offend somebody too, but I, I guess I'm batting, struck out all three, you know, three times as a, as a charm. But the curious thing about the Palestinian flag, you know, you see it on the news all the time, but have you noticed the colors in there? You have the white horse, the black horse, 
the, the I meant the red horse, then you had the black horse, then you had the green horse. It's kind of, is that a coincidence or, I don't know. But a lot of flags of the uh, Islamic nations cover those, carry those colors, so it makes you wonder about how, how the relationship to the uh, four horsemen are. So I hope that wasn't too long and too, uh, too much, but I uh, hope you got something out of it. That, like I said, that last page on your attachment there that has the other titles or references ascribed to and of the Antichrist in the Bible, you can go back and read those and kind of line them up with what we talked about as far as Nimrod, uh, especially the ones in Daniel. Uh, it'll help because we'll cover some of those also in a future lesson. Uh, okay, see you. Uh, we'll see you guys next Wednesday for uh, lesson number nine. Let's close with a word of prayer. Well, Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the, the revealing of your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that your word says that, that, we, that as we study and read your word in Revelation that we will be blessed. And I thank you, Father, as we leave this place where we will be blessed. We will be blessed, Father, and I pray that as we, as we see and understand things right here that we have that sense of urgency in our hearts to know that uh, we, need to, uh, we need to live our lives uh, in a holy way before men to give testimony in every opportunity that we have to, to bring people over, to get them before, uh, because we know time is running out in, this, in these times. So, Father, help us not to be, a, not to be scared, but to be prepared. Help us to uh, do everything that we can in our power and the tools and the equipping that you have given to us to, uh, to uh, win the lost to Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we want to thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We pray that you heard from God and that this message was for you. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people with this message. Arena of Life takes pride in connecting to God, to church, and to people. And we want to connect with you. So don't forget to check us out on all social media platforms to check out our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and to download the Church Center app and to choose Arena of Life as your church. And a special thanks to those who make a difference by giving generously. You help us change lives and produce weekly content like this that reaches the world. If you're interested in partnering with us, you can give by clicking the link in our bio through the website, arenaoflifechurch.org, or through the Church Center app, May the Lord bless you and keep you, and we'll see you next week.